0: 10. Eno Apology for discussing on a Sunday the best means of ensuring human liberty. Cheers. I will give you first of all my reasons for coming to the conclusion that after the struggle victory must wait on our banners if we properly utilize our resources and opportunities. The natural resources of the allied countries are overwhelmingly greater than those of their enemies. In the man capable of bearing arms, in the financial and economic resources of these countries in their accessibility to the markets of the world through the command of the sea for the purpose of obtaining material and munitions all these are preponderatingly in favor of the allied countries, but there is a greater reason in all these, beyond all is the moral strength of our cause, and that counts in a struggle which involves sacrifices, suffering, and privation for all those engaged in it, a nation cannot endure to the end that has on its soul the crimes of Belgium, loud cheers. The allied powers have at their disposal more than twice the number of men which their enemies can command. You may ask me why are not those overwhelming forces put into the field at once and this terrible war brought to a triumphant conclusion at the earliest possible moment. In the answer to that question lies the cause of the war. The reason why Germany declared war is in the answer to that question. In the old days when a nation's liberty was menaced by an aggressor a man took from the chimney corner his bow and arrow or his spear or a sword which had been left to him by an ancestry of warriors, went to the gathering ground of his tribe, and the nation was fully equipped for war. That is not the case now. Now you fight with complicated, highly finished weapons, apart altogether from the huge artillery. Every rifle which a man handles is a complicated and ingenious piece of mechanism, and it takes time. The German arsenals were full of the machinery of horror and destruction. The Russian arsenals were not, and that is the reason for the war. Had Russia projected war, she also would have filled her arsenals. But she desired above everything peace. Here, here, I am not sure that Russia has ever been responsible for a war of aggression against any of her European neighbors. Certainly this is not one of them. She wanted peace. She needed peace. She meant peace. And she would have had peace had she been left alone. She was at the beginning of a great industrial development and she wanted peace in order to bring it to its full fructification. She had repeatedly stood insolences at the hands of Germany up to the point of humiliation, all for peace, and anything for peace, whatever anyone may say about her internal government. Russia was essentially a peaceable nation. The men at the head of her affairs were imbued with the spirit of peace. The head of her army, the Grand Duke Nicholas, cheers, is about the best friend of peace in Europe never was a nation so bent on preserving peace as Russia was. It is true Germany six or seven years ago had threatened to march her legions across the Vistula and trample down Russia in the mud. And Russia, fearing a repetition of the same threat, was putting herself in a position of defense. But she was not preparing for any aggression. And Germany said, this won't do. We don't like people who can defend themselves. We are fully prepared. Russia is not. This is the time to plant our dagger of tempered steel in her heart before her breastplates are forged. That is why we are at war. Cheers. Germany hurried her preparations. Made ready for war. She made a quarrel with the same cool calculation as she had made a new gun. She hurled her warriors across the frontier. Why? Because she wanted to attack somebody. A country that could not defend herself. It was the purest piece of brigandage in history. Cheers. All the same there remains the fact that Russia was taken at a disadvantage, and Ireland therefore, unable to utilize beyond a fraction the enormous resources which she possesses to protect her soil against the invader, France was not expecting war, and she, therefore, was taken in what about Britain, we never contemplated any war of aggression against any of our neighbors, and therefore we never raised an army adequate to such sinister purposes. During the last 30 years the two great political parties in the state have been responsible for the policy of this country at home and abroad. For about the same period we have each been governing this country. For about 15 years neither one party nor the other ever proposed to raise an army in this country that would enable us to confront on land a great continental power. What does that mean? We never meant to invade any continental country. Cheers. That is the proof of it. If we had we would have started our great armies years ago we had a great navy, purely for protection, purely for the defense of our shores, and we had an army which was just enough to deal with any small raid that happened to get through the meshes of our navy, and perhaps to police the empire, that was all, no more, but now we have to assist neighbors becoming the victims of a power with millions of warriors at its command, and we have to improvise a great army, and gallantly have our men flock to the standard, cheers. We have raised the largest voluntary army that has been enrolled in any country or any century, the largest voluntary army, and it is going to be larger. Cheers. I saw a very fine sample of that army this morning at Londudno. I attended a service there, and I think it was about the most thrilling religious service I had ever been privileged to attend. There were men there of every class, every position, every calling, every condition of life. The peasant had left his plough. The workman had left his lathe and his loom, the clerk had left his desk, the trader and the businessman had left their counting houses, the shepherd had left his sunlit hills, and the miner the darkness of the earth, the rich proprietor had left his palace, and the man earning his daily bread had quitted his humble cottage, there were men there of diverse and varied faiths who worshipped at different shrines men who were in array against each other months ago in bitter conflict. And I saw them march with one step under one flag to fight for the same cause. And I saw them worship the same God. What has brought them together? The love of their native land. Resentment for a cruel wrong inflicted upon the weak and defenseless. More than that. What brought them together was that instinct which comes to humanity at critical times when the moment has arrived to cross rivers of blood in order to rescue humanity from the grip of some strangling despotism. Cheers. They have done nobly. That is what has brought them together. But we want more. Cheers. And I have no doubt we will get more. If this country had produced an army which was equal in proportion to its population to the number of men under arms in France and in Germany at the present moment there would be three millions and a half in this country and one dot in the colonies. Cheers. That is what I mean when I say our resources are quite adequate to the task. It is not our fight merely it is the fight of humanity. Cheers. The allied countries between them could raise armies of over 20 millions of men. Our enemies can put in the field barely half that number. Much as I should like to talk about the need for more men. That is not the point of my special appeal today. We stand more in need of equipment than we do of men. This is an engineer's war. Cheers. And it will be won or lost owing to the efforts or shortcomings of engineers. I have something to say about that. For it involves sacrifices for all of us unless we are able to equip our armies our predominance in men will avail us nothing we need men but we need arms more than men and delay in producing them is full of peril for this country you may say that i am saying things that ought to be kept from the enemy i am not a believer in giving any information which is full to him you may depend on it he knows but i do not believe in withholding from our own public information which they ought to possess because unless you tell them you cannot invite their company operation The nation that cannot bear the truth is not fit for war. And may our young men be volunteers, while the unflinching pride of those they have left behind them in their deed of sacrifice ought to satisfy the most apprehensive that we are not a timid race, who cannot face unpleasant facts. The last thing in the world John Bull wants is to be mollycoddled. The people must be told exactly what the position island and then we can ask them to help. We must appeal for the company operation of employers, workmen. And the general public, the three must act and endure together, or we delay and maybe imperil victory. We ought to requisition the aid of every man who can handle well. It means that the needs of the community in many respects will suffer acutely vexatious, and perhaps injurious, delay, but I feel sure that the public are prepared to put up with all this discomfort, loss, and privation if thereby their country marches triumphantly out of this great struggle. Cheers. We have every reason for confidence. We have none for complacency. Hope is the mainspring of efficiency, complacency is its rust. We laugh at things in Germany that ought to terrify us. We say, look at the way they are making their bread out of potatoes. Ha! Ha! Aye! That potato bread spirit is something which is more to dread than to mock at. I fear that more than I do even von Hindenburg's strategy, efficient as it may be, that is the spirit in which a country should meet a great emergency. And instead of mocking at it we ought to emulate it. I believe we are just as imbued with the spirit as Germany Island but we want it evoked. Cheers. The average Briton is too shy to be a hero until he is asked. The British temper is one of never wasting heroism on needless display. But there is plenty of it for the need. There is nothing Britishers would not give up for the honor of their country or for the cause of freedom. Indulgences. Comforts. Even the necessities of life they would willingly surrender. Why? There are two millions of them at this hour who have willingly tendered their lives for their country. What more could they do? If the absorption of all our engineering resources is demanded, no British citizen will grudge his share of inconvenience. But what about those more immediately concerned in that kind of work? Here I am approaching something which is very difficult to talk about I mean the employers and workmen. I must speak out quite plainly, nothing else is of the slightest use. For one reason or another we are not getting all the assistance we had the right to expect from our workers. Disputes, industrial disputes, are inevitable, and when you have a good deal of stress and strain, men's nerves are not at their best. I think I can say I always preserve my temper in these days I hope my wife won't give me away laughter and I have no doubt that the spirit of unrest creeps into the relations between employer and workman. Some differences of opinion are quite inevitable, but we cannot afford them now. And, above all, we cannot resort to the usual method of settling them. I suppose I have settled more labor disputes than any man in this hall. And, although those who only know me slightly may be surprised to hear me say it, the thing that you need most is patience. If I were to give a motto to a man who is going to a conference between employers and workmen I would say, take your time, don't hurry, it will come around with patience and tact and temper. But you know we cannot afford those leisurely methods now. Time is victory. Cheers. And while employers and workmen on the Clyde have been spending time in disputing over a fraction, and when a weekend, ten days, and a fortnight of work which is absolutely necessary for the defense of the country has been set aside, I say here solemnly that it is intolerable that the life of Britain should be imperiled for the matter of a farthing an hour. Who is to blame? That is not the question. But how it is to be stopped? Employers will say, are we always to give way? Workmen say employers are making their fortunes out of an emergency of the country. Why are not we to have a share of the plunder? Here, here, and laughter. There is one gentleman here who holds that view. Laughter. I hope he is not an engineer. Renewed laughter. We work harder than ever. Say the workmen. All I can say, Island, if they do, they are entitled to their share. But that is not the point. Who is right? Who is wrong? They are both right and they are both wrong. The whole point is that these questions ought to be settled without throwing away the chances of humanity in its greatest struggle. Cheers! There is a good deal to be said for and there is a vast amount to be said against compulsory arbitration. But during the war the government ought to have power to settle all these differences. And the work should go on. The workman ought to get more. Very well. Let the government find it out and give it to him. If he ought not, then he ought not to throw up his tools. The country cannot afford it. It is disaster. And I do not believe the moment this comes home to a workman and employers they will refuse to comply with the urgent demand of the government. There must be no delay. There is another aspect of the question which it is difficult and dangerous to tackle. There are all sorts of regulations for restricting output. I will say nothing about the merits of this question. There are reasons why they have been built up. The conditions of employment and payment are mostly to blame for those restrictions. The workmen had to fight for them for their own protection. But in a period of war there is a suspension of ordinary law. Output is everything in this war. This war is not going to be fought mainly on the battlefields of Belgium and Poland. It is going to be fought in the workshops of France and Great Britain, and it must be fought there under war conditions. There must be plenty of safeguards and the workman must get his equivalent. But I do hope he will help us to get as much out of those workshops as he can. For the life of the nation depends on it our enemies realize that, and employers and workmen in Germany are straining their utmost, France, fortunately, also realizes it, and in that land of free institutions, with a socialist prime minister, a socialist secretary of state for war, and a socialist minister of marine, the employers and workmen are subordinating everything to the protection of their beautiful land, I have something more to say about this, and it is unpleasant, I would wish that it were not I but somebody else that should say it, most of our workmen are putting every ounce of strength into the urgent work for their country, loyally and patriotically, but that is not true of all. There are some, I am sorry to say, who shirk their duty in this great emergency. I hear of workmen in armaments works who refuse to work a full week's work for the nation's need. What is the reason? They are a minority. The vast majority belong to a class we can depend upon. The others are a minority, but, you must remember, A small minority of workmen can throw a whole works out of gear. What is the reason? Sometimes it is one thing. Sometimes it is another. But let us be perfectly candid. It is mostly the lure of the drink. They refuse to work full time. And when they return their strength and efficiency are impaired by the way in which they have spent their leisure. Drink is doing us more damage in the war than all the German submarines put together. What has Russia done? Cheers. Russia. Knowing her deficiency. Knowing how unprepared she was, said, I must pull myself together. I am not going to be trampled upon. And ready as I am, I will use all my resources. What is the first thing she does? She stops the drink. Cheers. I was talking to Embark, the Russian Minister of Finance, a singularly able man, and I asked, what has been the result? He said, the productivity of labor, the amount of work which is put out by the workmen has gone up between 30 and 50 percent. Cheers, I said. How do they stand it without their liquor? And he replied, Stand it. I have lost revenue over it up to L65.000.000 a year, and we certainly cannot afford it. But if I propose to put it that there would be a revolution in Russia, that is what the Minister of Finance told me. He told me that it is entirely attributable to the act of the Tsar himself. It was a bold and courageous step one of the most heroic things in the war. Cheers. One afternoon we had to postpone our conference in Paris, and the French Minister of Finance said, I have got to go to the Chamber of Deputies, because I am proposing a bill to abolish absinthe. Cheers. Absinthe plays the same part in France that whiskey plays in this country. It is really the worst form of drink used, not only among workmen, but among other classes as well. Its ravages are terrible. And they abolished it by a majority of something like 10 to a 1 that afternoon. Cheers. That is how those great countries are facing their responsibilities. We do not propose anything so drastic as that we are essentially moderate men. Laughter. But we are armed with full powers for the defense of the realm. We are approaching it. I do not mind telling you. For the moment. Not from the point of view of people who have been considering this as a social problem. We are approaching it purely from the point of view of these works. We have got great powers to deal with drink, and we mean to use them. Cheers. We shall use them in a spirit of moderation. We shall use them discreetly. We shall use them wisely. But we shall use them fearlessly. Cheers. And I have no doubt that, as the country's needs demand it, the country will support our action and will allow no indulgence of that kind to interfere with its prospects in this terrible war which has been thrust upon us. There are three things I want you to bear in mind. The first is and I want to get this into the minds of everyone that we are at war, the second, that it is the greatest war that has ever been fought by this or any other country, and the other, that the destinies of your country and the future of the human race for generations to come depend upon the outcome of this war. What does it mean for Germany to win? It means world power for the worst elements in Germany, not for Germany. The Germans are an intelligent race, they are undoubtedly a cultivated race. They are a race of men who have been responsible for great ideas in this world, but this would mean the dominance of the worst elements among them. If you think I am exaggerating just you read for the moment extracts from the articles in the newspapers which are in the ascendancy now in Germany about the settlement which they expect after this war. I am sorry to say I am stating nothing but the bare, brutal truth. I do not say that the Kaiser will sit on the throne of England if he should win. I do not say that he will impose his laws and his language on this country as did William the Conqueror. I do not say that you will hear the tramp, the noisy tramp of the goose step in the cities of the empire. Laughter. I do not say that Death's Head Hazars will be patrolling our highways. I do not say that a visitor, let us say, to Aberdaron, will have to ask a Pomeranian policeman the best way to hell's mouth. Loud laughter. That is not what I mean. What I mean is that if Germany were triumphant in this war it would practically be the dictator of the international policy of the world. Its spirit would be in the ascendant. Its doctrines would be in the ascendant. By the sheer power of its will it would bend the minds of men in its own fashion. Germanism in its later and worst form would be the inspiriting thought and philosophy of the hour. Do you remember what happened to France after 1870? The German armies left France. But all the same four years after that, And while France was building up her army, she stood in towering terror of this monster. Even after her great army was built France was oppressed with a constant anxiety as to what might happen. Germany dismissed her ministers. Had it not been for the intervention of Queen Victoria in 1874 the French army would never have been allowed to be reconstructed. And France would simply have been the humble slave of Germany to this hour. What a condition for a country. And now France is fighting not so much to recover her lost provinces. She is fighting to recover her self-respect and her national independence. She is fighting to shake off this nightmare that has been on her soul for over a generation. Cheers! A France with Germany constantly meddling, bullying, and interfering. And that is what would happen if Russia were trampled upon. France broken. Britain disarmed. We should be left without any means to defend ourselves. We might have a navy that would enable us. Perhaps, to a resent insult from Nicaragua, laughter, we might have just enough troops. Perhaps, to confront the mad mole, I mean the African specimen, loud laughter, where would the chivalrous country be to step in to protect us as we protected France in 1874? America, if countries like Russia and France, with their huge armies, and the most powerful navy in the world could not face this terrible military machine, if it breaks that combination, how can America step in? It would be more than America can do to defend her own interests on her own continent if Germany is triumphant. They are more in ready than we were. Ah! But what manner of Germany would we be subordinate to? There has been a struggle going on in Germany for over thirty years between its best and its worst elements. It is like that great struggle which is depicted, I think, in one of Wagner's great operas between the good and the evil spirit for the possession of the man's soul. That great struggle has been going on in Germany for 30 or 40 years. That each successive general election the better elements seem to be getting the upper hand. And I do not mind saying I was one of those who believed they were going to win. I thought they were going to snatch the soul of Germany it is worth saving. It is a great, powerful soul I thought they were going to save it. So that military caste said, we will have none of this. And they plunged Europe into seas of blood. Hope was again shattered. Those worst elements will emerge triumphant out of this war if Germany wins. What does that mean? We shall be vassals. Not to the best Germany. Not to the Germany of sweet songs and inspiring, noble thoughts. Not to the Germany of science consecrated to the service of man. Not to the Germany of a virile philosophy that helped to break the shackles of superstition in Europe. Not to that Germany. But to a Germany that talked through the raucous voice of Krupp's artillery. A Germany that has harnessed science to the chariot of destruction and of death, the Germany of a philosophy of force, violence, and brutality, a Germany that would quench every spark of freedom either in its own land or in any other country in rivers of blood, I make no apology on a day consecrated to the greatest sacrifice for coming here to preach a holy war against that, great cheering. Concluding the speech in Welsh, Mr Lloyd George said, War is a time of sacrifice and of service. Some can render one service, some another, some here and some there, some can render great assistance, others but little. There is not one who cannot help in some measure, whether it be only by enduring cheerfully his share of the discomfort. In the old Welsh legend there is a story of a man who was given a series of what appeared to be impossible tasks to perform ere he could reach the desires of his heart. Among other things he had to do was to recover every grain of seed that had been sown in a large field and bring it all in without one missing by sunset. He came to an end and won all the hearts and enlisted the sympathies of the industrious little people. They spread over the field, and before sundown the seed was all in except one. And as the sun was setting over the western skies a lame ant hobbled along with that grain also. Some of us have youth and vigor and suppleness of limb, some of us are crippled with years or infirmities. And we are at best but little ants, but we can all limp along with some share of our country's burden, and thus help her in this terrible hour to win the desire of her heart. Loud cheers! Mr. Lloyd George and his party returned after the meeting to London, No. Where today he will inspect the 1st Brigade of the Welsh Army Corps. Britain's Munitions Committee, London, April 14th. The Times says this morning, an important step has at last been taken by the government toward the solution of the supreme problem of the moment the organization of the national output of munitions of war. A strong committee has been appointed, with full power to deal with the question, it is to be representative of not merely one department but of the Treasury, Admiralty, War Office, and Board of Trade, in short, of the whole government, with all its resources and authority, the Chancellor of the Exchequer is to be Chairman and the first meeting will be held today, the work before the committee is nothing less than the organization of the whole resources of the nation for the production of materials of war, hitherto, in spite of many warnings and some half-hearted attempts at organization, there has been no central, company ordinate authority, it is an open secret that it was during Lloyd George's visit to France at the beginning of the year that he first appreciated the scientific organization of labor which our allies had already achieved, Not content with utilizing and extending the existing armament plant, the French have long since diverted several temporarily irrelevant industries to the main business of waging war. With reference to the drink problem, the Times says, while the government is apparently considering the expropriation of all the licensed houses in the kingdom, this far-reaching proposal has not at present gone beyond the stage of inquiry and consultation, and it is tolerably certain that it will go no farther unless it is assured of no serious opposition in the country. The parliamentary opposition, the leaders of which have been consulted in a general way, are believed to stand by the principle which they followed since the war began, namely, they are not prepared to quarrel with any measure which the government regards as necessary for the active prosecution of the war so long as no injustice is done to established interests. Italy's evolution as reflected in her press Italy has reached her present position through the development of a policy the steps of which have been brightly illuminated by the press of the peninsula the most important of these steps may be designated as follows, first, the declaration of the government to the German ambassador at Rome on August 1, 1914, that it did not regard the conflict begun by Austria-Hungary and Germany as a defensive war and hence not binding on it as a member of the Triple Alliance, and its subsequent declarations of neutrality, of armed neutrality, and of a neutrality which is likely to be broken if the interests of the country demanded it, second, Premier Salandra's speech of December 3rd for armed, alert neutrality, and the declaration in Parliament on December 5th by senior geology showing that the declaration of August 1st was merely a repetition of one conveyed to Austria in the summer of 1913, when Austria had suggested that she aid Bulgaria in subduing Serbia. Third, the arrival in Rome in December of the former German Imperial Chancellor, Prince von Below, as extraordinary ambassador to the choir for the purpose of keeping Italy neutral, and, when this seemed doubtful, to negotiate between Italy and Austria what territorial compensation the latter would render the former in order to perpetuate the neutrality of the peninsula, aside from the influence of these official acts, which invited press comments, the Italian papers have paid keen attention to the conduct of the war, concerning which the government could not, on account of its neutrality, offer an opinion. Among such incidents of conduct have been the British declaration of a protectorate over Egypt and the bombardment of the Dardanelles by the Franco-British fleet. In order to weigh the full significance of the comments of the Italian papers on these subjects, a word may be said concerning the status of the journals themselves. The most conspicuous is the Idea Nazionale, a paper of Rome practically dedicated to intervention. Then comes the conservative and solid Corriere della Sera of Milan, whose Rhone correspondent, Signor Tor, has peculiar facilities for learning the intentions of the Ministry. Both the Tribuna and the Jornale d'Italia are considered government organs, but, while the former rarely comments with authority except on accomplished facts, the latter, although often voicing the unofficial and personal opinions of Premier Solandra, who is known to be privately in favor of intervention, also voices the sentiment of former Premier who who is known to be for continued neutrality. The stamp of Turin is a Giolitti organ, The Osservator Romano is the well-known Vatican organ, which naturally supports Austria, a Catholic country, where such support does not conflict too wantedly with the sentiments of Catholics in neutral countries. Other clerical papers with strong pro-German opinions and with German industrial backing are the Corriere D'Italia and the Popolo Romano, the Messagero of Rome and the Sicolo of Milan, influenced by important British and French interests, are for intervention at all costs. Biovandi is the socialist organ. Causes of Italy's neutrality. From the Corriere della Sera, August 2, 1914, Italy's decision to remain neutral is based on three causes, 1. The terms of the Triple Alliance call for Italy's participation in war only if Germany or Austria-Hungary is attacked by another power. The present war is not a defensive war, but one brought on by Austria-Hungary and Germany. Two. The spirit of the alliance demands that no warlike action be taken involving the three countries without full mutual discussion and agreement. Italy was not even consulted by Austria-Hungary and the course of events was brought to her knowledge only by news agency reports. 3. When Italy went to a war with Turkey, Austria prevented her from acting with a free hand in the Adriatic and the Aegean, thereby prolonging the war at an inner.